Hello and welcome to The Case Files. I'm Kate Chabot and over the course of this podcast series, I'll be bringing you the true life stories behind some of the UK's most fascinating legal cases, all told with unparalleled access to the people and lawyers closest to events. In this episode, we'll hear a tragedy unfold after a GP practice repeatedly failed to spot the signs of cervical cancer. She was suffering from pain in her back. She would tell me that she's constantly bleeding. We trusted her doctor to sort of, let's go and see the doctor, let's go and see the GP and let's find out what's going wrong. And I think it was about 30 occasions she went back. We'll discover the courage of a 23-year-old woman faced with a terminal diagnosis. It was astounding given what she was going through. A kind of zest for life, even at the point of diagnosis, when generally a lot of young people are terrified. She'd go out of her way to make sure people weren't upset. And, as well as a case of medical negligence, we'll find a father taking inspiration from grief. Her two wishes were don't let people forget me and also to stop this awful disease so the same thing doesn't happen to other people. That's what Emma wanted. And I'll do that till I die. This episode of The Case Files is about relationships and trust. The trust we place in medical professionals making life-changing decisions. It's a story that makes you stop and think. Am I making the most of the people closest to me? Making the most of my family? Darren, did you always want to be a dad? 100%. 100%. I did think I'd be doing the football and the motorbikes and the, (laughs) you know, dirty climbing trees and all that kind of stuff, but it didn't happen. I had three girls. Loved my daughters to bits, but I wasn't really into that makeup stuff. But they'll take the mickey out of me. They'll be talking to Darren Swain. You soon understand how much being a father means to him. Yeah, but Darren, you you did get a girl who loved cars like you, particularly fast, moderated cars. So (laughs) she gets that from me a little bit, I think. Darren's three daughters have always been right at the heart of everything, especially his eldest, Emma. My first property that I bought was with Emma. You know, we had a one-bedroom flat with her, so she had total devotion, um, all that first initial attention until the others um, come along. And then you have to divide it by three. We would play act and they would dress up in mum and dad's clothes and all those sorts of things were just great fun. So when I separated from my first marriage, um, nothing changed. Saw them every single day and spoke to them every single day. So any time we could get together, we would. There's something wonderful about discovering a really close, trusting father-daughter relationship. When I went out with Emma, a special place was Keston Ponds, just half an hour drive away. I mean, it's a beautiful place, just countryside, two fishing ponds, very small village green with um, one pub. We've got our food and maybe the other tip-off. We would walk and we would talk and and we would plan and we would... And actually, you'd think a young adult, let's just say we're a dad, you'd have very little to talk about, but we could talk forever, and, um, and did. It was in 2013, in a conversation with her dad, that Emma first mentioned there might be something wrong with her. Initially, there was just stomach trouble and, you know, periods and 
worrying a little bit about constant bleeding and post-coital bleeding after sex. She's only had one boyfriend and she wasn't with him at the time, but when she was with him, she did have them symptoms. So Emma went to see her GP and she asked for a cervical smear test, the screening test that checks the health of your cervix. She went in, spoke to her trusted GP that she's had since she was born. She asked for a smear and he said, look, you're too young to have that smear and you don't need to. She came home and said the doctor said, I'm OK, I don't need a smear test. So you two, between you, how were you feeling about it? Were you reassured? 100% confident that that's been her family doctor and trusted that he knew what he was doing. He knows what he's talking about. He's a professional. Emma's GP had decided that no cervical screening was needed. Emma was 22 and was told she was too young. Standard practice, as it still is today, was that you need to be 25 or older to have a smear test. Her GP decided what was needed was a change in her contraceptive pill. But her symptoms continued. started to get a bit of back pain and it, it continued and the, and the medication um, was being changed and changed and changed. Up till then, we suspected nothing at all. But Emma continued to go to her GP to work out why things weren't improving. She had repeated visits explaining each time her symptoms. Other than the change of medication, no further investigation was made. She would tell me she was suffering from pain in her back. She would tell me that she's constantly bleeding. She was depressed and had a little bit of anxiety. And, and all of that, we trusted her doctor to sort of, let's go and see the doctor, let's go and see the GP, and let's, you know, let's find out what's going wrong. And So how soon did she go back? Frequently, weekly, telephone call the next week, then the next week. I think it was about 30 occasions she went back to the GP, whether that was... Sometimes she see different... Doctor, sometimes she would see her main GP. Despite these dozens of trips and the continuing problems, Emma was being told there was nothing seriously wrong. And she was refused a cervical smear test. The doctors considered her too young to need one, despite the recurring symptoms. She was told to continue life as normal. Her uh, first visit to the doctor was May. In August, we... We were asking the doctor, oh, heavy bleeding, etc. is it OK to go on holiday? And he said, yep, go and enjoy your holiday, everything will be fine, you can swim, you can do all the normal stuff. A relief. A rest from the day job at Tesco for Darren and for Emma. They work for the same company. And a break for the whole family from the pressures of daily life. So when we're on holiday, she'd, you know, not wear makeup, go to the beach, eat and drink and relax and that. To get a picture of Emma when she's not looking great would be a challenge. Those are the pictures that were quite special to me as well because I just go, right, I got you, but she would make me promise not to share those pictures on social media. But throughout the trip, Emma was feeling worse. While she was on holiday, she was in extreme discomfort. At that point, we'd not had a smear, we'd not had anything like that. Came back on beginning of September... She went to see a different doctor, and it was a lady, and this was quite lucky. The lady looked at how long this had been going on for, and she went, this can't be right, this is ridiculous, we need to sort this out. And Emma moved for a smear test. I suppose it was nice to see they were moving and starting to do something, because she's been in discomfort all that time, and um, we're at that point, her mum at that point, everyone's worried... Although we're not really thinking the severity of it at that point. We're thinking they're doing the right thing that they should have done at the start. Thinking they're eliminating the possibility that there could be anything wrong in the cervix. 
And then it was at that point that we found out that she had some abnormalities. After months of discomfort, months of worry and dozens of doctor's appointments. But for Darren, it was a reassuring moment. The nurse said, look, that is pretty normal. You get, you get that, them abnormalities and we may retest you in six months' time. But well, the thing that didn't change, she kept having the symptoms, the constant bleeding and the pains and the lower back pains. And the result came back. The same doctor, the female doctor said, look, you're still having the same problem. We're going to have to get a biopsy. So Emma attended hospital and a tissue sample was taken to check for any disease. Emma was waiting for the result and Darren was waiting for the call from Emma. Christmas was approaching and the phone rang as he was taking part in the work Christmas play. December the 11th, remember it absolutely clear as a bell. I'm in there play acting a play in front of 100 staff, Mary and Joseph on Christmas play. And all of a sudden I get a phone call to break out and get broken the news that she's got cervical cancer. You, you actually carried on with the play, didn't you, even though you had that news? Yeah. It was Emma that told me to do that. She said, look, I'll go and finish it and then after work we'll go for a Chinese and we can talk for it, but don't worry, I'm, everything's going to be all right. I'm just going to sort this out. And that's how strong, from day one, that's how strong you started to see her become. She got stronger as time went on. And we went out and had something to eat. We talked for it. But a low stage of cervical cancer. A low stage, they said, but don't really understand much about it. So we're obviously relying on Google. It's not sinking in and until until we go and have the first consultation with the professionals. Then it starts to sink in that there's a risk here. But even at that point, we're thinking 100% cure. There are times when life can change in a heartbeat. For Emma, when she got her diagnosis, aged just 22. For Darren, getting a call during his Christmas play. Moments when you know things will be different. But just how different, only time will tell. Working with young people facing this journey is what Laura Perkins does at the Royal Marston Hospital. She's from a charity called Click Sergeant. They try to lessen the impact a cancer diagnosis has on the lives of young people. I think when the doctor says cancer, it's something a parent would only have a nightmare about. It's hard with a capital H. There's no way about it. Families really struggle when hospitals say, right, this is what you're doing, treatment is on these days, and you have to jump through those hoops, be at appointments on time, radiotherapy daily. We get families travelling from Dover up to the Marsden every day for six weeks. It's a huge financial strain, a huge time strain. It's how you cope with everything else that's spiralling out of control when you're trying to support your child. For some families, they, they can go into crisis mode and fall apart. Or you get families that just manage it brilliantly and they've got excellent support networks and people really step up to the plate and take siblings for the weekend or just give meals. It's the simple things that can make it so much easier. For those with cervical cancer, if picked up early, they have a good chance of survival. But for Emma, months had been lost. Months where medical intervention could have happened. She started on her journey. Lara remembers their first meeting. She was on our adult ward. She was quite low in spirit. She was really struggling, hence why she was having a blood transfusion. 
and went up to meet her and she was just sat there with her dad and immediately she just kind of radiated this big smile and greeted me and we sat down and talked through the support that I could offer them. And what were your first impressions of Emma? She had a kind of zest for life that was a bit infectious. She found humour in every part of everything that I was saying, just she was laughing things off and laughing about maybe losing hair and that sort of thing, when generally a lot of young people are terrified. It definitely gave her strength. And what about her dad? They kind of seemed to come as a package. It was very clear from that first moment that they had an incredible bond. Darren also was able to find humour in everything. And sometimes we do kind of see the young person doing really well and maybe the parents falling apart behind the scenes. Emma and Darren, they just were this really strong unit. Emma and Darren had plenty of time to look back and to look forward as they sat with Emma's sisters and mum at the hospital. They were lengthy treatments and Lara was on hand for support. It was mainly kind of supporting her and getting to know the hospital. Practicalities to do with talking to work, letting them know. I supported Emma in speaking to some of her closest friends. We didn't really understand how best to tell them. She never wanted to worry anyone, even sometimes when that was perhaps not what she wanted. She carried a lot of her emotion until there were moments when I could tease it out of her which was astounding given what she was going through. Initially, she had a long stint of radiotherapy, six weeks of daily radiotherapy, and it was along the way she went through everything. She had chemo, then she had a special treatment called brachiotherapy in a different hospital. But while she was in the room, I'd take the opportunity to just sit with Darren and talk about any concerns he might have, and then see Emma either side of that just to check in on how she was doing. And at what point did she start to confide in you? What happened? Our relationship kind of grew very quickly in that she was very keen to tell me things about what she'd been up to at the weekend and what she was doing, what she was wearing, where she was going, and that's just kind of gave us a solid understanding. I think with Emma, no stone was really unturned. Goodness, we talked for hours and and covered a lot of her concerns. And I think when I started in the job, I was 24. It was really hard thinking that these young people were going through this, but actually this could be me we all know cancer doesn't discriminate anyone can be touched by it and I think the thing that always gets me through difficult days is knowing that however difficult the situation is for these young people there are certainly things that I can do to lessen that burden even if it's as simple as just sitting down with them and talking and taking some of their concerns and their worries away I know for Emma, she struggled to lay a lot of her concerns on her sisters and on her dad because she didn't want to worry them. She didn't want to overburden them when they were already concerned about her. One of the things Lara did was help arrange events for Emma. We tried to build things to look forward to at points in treatment so that it's not all hospital, hospital, hospital. And with Emma, there was a lovely moment where we were gifted some tickets to the Britain's Got Talent, I think it was the live final, And I was able to present these to Emma and and she went with Darren, actually, and they had a lovely evening. And I I could only do that because I'd built that relationship with her and I knew that that would be something that would interest her. All her family were there for her, but Darren's strength in coping and his close bond with Emma meant he was providing Emma with a lot of support. Treatments continued and, sadly, things got worse. We're actually in the hospital bed. She's had a blood transfusion and um, we found out that it spread from the cervix 
into the lung. And um, it's not one you want to hear about lung cancer because there is no real cure for it. We got Emma in touch with someone who was really like-minded in that she had a very exuberant personality and, and also had a similar diagnosis. And they became very close and that helped when Emma could confide in someone who knew exactly what she was going through. The consultant comes in and, um, and basically tells us that the cancer's got bigger. That little speck was now a big speck and it's terminal. I mean, that's, that's going to be the biggest day ever of our life, really. Her mum, myself, we were all round the bed. We all broke down in tears and Emma just sat up and went, why, why are you lot? Why are you lot crying? Um, I'm the one who's going to die. And then she looked at me and said, Dad, like, can we go for a Chinese? And <laughs> I just want to let you know, I still want that car, by the way, because that was what we was going to do when she beat cancer. Promised her I would buy her a car and... Um, it's strange, surreal, you're kind of not with it. It's like you're in a dream and, and those things are happening, but she didn't cry. And you start to learn that all the way through the cancer. When she was struggling, she would hold her, hold, hold, hold it together because she doesn't want anyone to suffer, knowing she's suffering. We had sad times. We had times when she made friends. There was about 10 of them that were all terminal, suffering from cancer, and she saw them go, and it scared her. We booked this luxury villa once we found out she was... And I, I found out from her afterwards that she was in extreme pain in her massive bedroom, like you'd dream for if you was a teenager. When we was in the hospital, she said, I like, you know, I didn't want to tell you that because I didn't want to spoil everyone's holiday. And I'm like, you, you go through all sorts of guilt with that, thinking, oh, my God. There were two strands of our work. It was the memory-making and enjoying living in those moments. And then it was also the legacy Emma was really keen to be remembered, however that might be. She wanted to try and swim with dolphins, and unfortunately at that point, it was getting towards the point of her not being able to travel on a plane. So we reined her in a bit on that one and thought, maybe we'll just go and see some dolphins. I suggested a, a number of restaurants that she might want to enjoy eating out at. She tried to put her affairs in order, and I can't quite believe the strength that she mustered to do that. She wrote letters to her sisters that she wanted them to have before she passed away. You know, read for everything she wanted to say to her sister. There'd be tears all over the place from the sisters. and But she wanted to have that letter so that when they were down after she passed that they could look back on it as a happy occasion. She'd done the same with her friends, so she got all her fingerprints done in little silver key rings for the boys and bracelets for the girls and necklaces for the older... You know, these are things that traditionally Lara advised that you do, so when you pass, you can give to people. Emma's like, I don't want to do that when I pass, I want to do it before I pass. And Emma also thought up other surprises for her family. She got £100,000 of um, Tesco's pension, but the thing is, she wouldn't have got that pension until she passed. But she made me loan her £100,000 because she wanted to gift that while people are around. And I've got a video on my phone, I've never been able to watch it, where in the hospital with all the nurses around, we pulled mum in first of all, and she said, mum, you've always wanted that kitchen, here's £25,000. She said to her sister, Amy, you know, you've always wanted that sports car, you've, you've dreamed about it, just go and buy it, here's the money. 
And she said the same to Lauren as well. You always saved your money and you're going to have the, you know, the first property that you want. And I know you've already got more money than most of us, but here's another 25 grand. She said, what can I buy dad who doesn't need anything? I didn't know what to buy. So there's 25 grand. That's your beers for the rest of your life. The whole room, whole room, including my daughter's run out. The nurses were all over the place. And, but it was a really happy memory and just showing you what type of person she was. I thought she was gonna live for 12 months and we had a bucket list, nice cars, nice days out racing and all that kind of stuff. We'd never done any of it because the cancer in the lung had spread, wrapped around the heart, which was causing the heart to fight it off. And we had like, you know, less than 12 weeks you start to realise then material things are not important. And even the most important thing for Emma was we managed to get from the house where I'm sitting now to the end of the road, a moment of pride because she was able to walk. That, again, was better than going on holiday. And you had to look after her, really, didn't you? Do a lot of the hard work. I moved out of my bedroom and into her bedroom, bought an extra bed and lived in there, said goodbye to my wife and lived in there. It was too stressful for mum and sisters. They couldn't have coped with seeing her in that pain, whereas it was difficult, but I would hold that strength. And every day I would sh shower her, get her ready, get her downstairs, which was really difficult because her body was swollen at the time and she was in extreme pain. But, but then even in October, we were sitting in the garden. The sun, I remember it clear as a bell that the sun was out. We had the deck chairs out. I put the barbecue on and her friends come over and we were eating and drinking laughing and joking they were all doing everything from her eyebrows to her makeup to her toenails and they were eating and drinking and it was just a really proper good quality time she she had some massive pain i didn't know and and so you know you know at that point it's going to change you wouldn't think that you could sit there in a hospital room and talk for 24 hours a day when you can't sleep in your pain, but we did. They allowed me to live there as well. They were the best times. And that went on for four weeks. And how long does it take her to slip away? She wanted us all around her. We was, and um, we were all around the bed. And mum went home with the girls and thought, come back tomorrow, and we're doing okay. We're, we're still fighting and told each other we loved each other and I was sitting by the side of the bed just looking after every two minutes I'd massage her legs because she was in pain and then um, I fell asleep it was a bit of a it was a bit of a, a guilt thing really because I fell asleep and while I fell asleep at five o'clock in the morning she passed that's a demon demon if I'm honest that's my personal nightmare but she, she, that's, that's Emma protecting me. The way it happened was so peaceful. Mm. But mum wasn't there and sisters wasn't there, so I had to then call them to, to absolutely tell them something, something I'll never forget. Came into the hospital and I went up and Darren told me that she'd gone. The nurses came in and washed her body. I sat with him and composed a text that he wanted to send out to people because he couldn't quite find the words. And then when they arrived, um, 
one of Emma's sisters couldn't quite bring herself to come in um, and wanted to remember Emma as she was, which isn't a surprise. But one of her other sisters came in and I sat with her before we went in the room and just said, there might be some changes. You can hold her hand. You can sit with her as long as you like. And, and we did exactly that. They helped take her handprints. We took locks of her hair and then just sat and chatted over her body and talked about all the good times, all the silly things she would say and how she'd cope and, and what they wanted to remember in that moment. And it was just, it was... And I just, I had a very lucky few minutes with her, really, where we just sat in silence. <laughs> she was just a very special young person. You're listening to The Case Files podcast with me, Kate Chabot, investigating the true life stories behind some of the UK's most fascinating legal cases. In this episode, we're hearing about Emma Swain, who passed away aged just 23 from cervical cancer. We've travelled a long way from those first trips to Keston Ponds with her father, Darren, and a long way from those first worrying symptoms. I said earlier that this edition of The Case Files is about trust. The trust you place in the medical profession. From the beginning, both Emma and Darren were troubled by the decisions made by Emma's GP. They wondered why she wasn't offered a cervical smear, despite having requested one. You know what? Right from the start, if you'd have reacted quicker, then we would have caught this. Initially, we just made a basic complaint to NHS Direct and thought we'll get an answer. And we did get no answer. They didn't even respond or acknowledge the letter, and I chased that. That in itself was a disgrace, and I thought, right, OK. So I wrote to them again, no answer. So then I thought I would pursue, and I, I, I thought I want to research a company that is professional and also um, specialises in cervical cancer. After some initial research, Emma spoke to the team at Slater & Gordon who work on medical claims. Emma contacted our firm in 2014 because I think she felt very strongly about what had happened to her, as did her family, and they didn't want this to happen to anyone else. How unusual is it and, and how useful is it to have the actual patient, even though she knows she's going to die, being able to help with the legal action? We frequently have clients who present to us during sort of end stages of their life or at the point when they're diagnosed if they think they've got reason to believe that they've got a complaint about their medical treatment. From our perspective, it's incredibly useful for us to be able to speak before they pass away because what's detailed in the medical records isn't always a real reflection of a discussion that took place for example in a GP surgery we get to speak to them and to have their version of events but also we understand the real impact of somebody's injuries or illness their family members might not be able to convey in the same way and also from the legal perspective in terms of the legal process we can take a witness statement from that client and it can potentially be relied upon in court. In these kind of cases, you, you must get very close to your clients because, because of the nature of the work. How difficult is it? I think it can be very difficult. And from our perspective, we work incredibly closely. We understand 
everything about their medical treatment as well as their personal lives. And we also form relationships with their families as part of what we do. So on a professional level, whilst we are there to sort of provide a legal service, it can be quite upsetting if we we lose our clients because we do form really strong relationships with them. Emma and Darren pursued the investigations with Slater and Gordon and a claim for medical negligence. Tragically, as the legal process continued, Emma passed away. We then instructed medical experts because we need medical experts to tell us whether the care that somebody has undergone is reasonable or not. And we look at how we can fulfil the sort of legal test for negligence. So in Emma's case, we obtained a report from a GP expert to comment on whether the care that she received was of a reasonable standard or not. And they sort of went through each of the consultations and advised us on what their views were in terms of whether there was substandard practice. And after we obtained that report, we then obtained a report from an oncology expert to tell us really what impact the delay had on her treatment and on her prognosis as well. What was revealed through the legal investigation and the medical experts' work was tragic. When she was diagnosed with cervical cancer, she had a stage 2B tumour, but our expert told us that had she been referred at the appropriate time, if she was given reasonable medical treatment, she would have had a stage one tumour. It wouldn't have spread. She would have been cured and she would have had a high chance of survival and would have had a normal life expectancy. A terrible thing to hear for any parent. When you lose one of your children, you're scarred for life. You've got a hole in the heart, a scar on your heart for the rest of your life, but no one can see it. And you start to realise that everyone thinks you've just moved on and you never move on. So the second voice in your head all the time, when you suffer from stress and that you'll know and all of us will suffer, that you have them two voices. There's always like a second voice in my head or a conscience out there that's Emma. So all day, every day, forever, I think about Emma. Here's a young woman who has a hunch of what's wrong with her, um, has researched it herself, has even gone in to tell the doctor, this is what I think I need. And she's repeatedly told, no, don't worry. Is there anything she could have done? I would make no criticism as to how Emma handled things because obviously she presented to her GP as the symptoms that she had were not normal for her. And she was being reassured that there was nothing to worry about and that there were issues with her contraceptive pills. She presented so many times to her GP. My overview is that there were a catalogue of errors that shouldn't have arisen the time that she initially presented to her GP practice. She'd been a fit and healthy young woman. And the fact is that her death was entirely avoidable. And it's also had a profound impact on her family. How's life been since? Um, It's terrible, to be honest, you know. And you have to hold strength. It's my job to keep the family together. Um, And even though I'm divorced from my first wife, it's always been amicable and we've always been supportive of the children and each other. So you have to hold it together, but it's it's 100% awful. Deep down, I worry about my daughters and the long-term impact. I know I'm stressed, but I, I'm learning how to cope with it, and I've, I've had professional support. 
um, their mum, you know, suffering. I can see that. I can recognise the sign. But I worry about my daughters when maybe they grow up and they get married and their sister's not there or they have children and their sister's not there or it's her birthday. I know we're all suffering. We're all suffering the same. Amid the pain and grief, Darren pursued his daughter's legal case. It was something that took years to work through. Maria issued formal court proceedings. A barrister was also instructed before we put the case formally to the defendants. And the reason cases take longer than I think people anticipate is because we're very reliant on third parties. We have to rely on medical experts to tell us whether they consider that the treatment's been negligent. So in the same way that we carried out our investigations, the defendant had to carry out their own investigations. But they did make an admission of liability. The surgery basically apologised for the sort of wrongdoings and they admitted that the care that they provided fell below a reasonable standard. And they made an admission in relation to Emma's death and said that if they had provided reasonable care, it would have been avoided. So once that apology was made, I then looked at valuing the case and we put together a schedule detailing the financial losses that arose as a result of Emma's death and then a settlement was negotiated between the parties. In the end, it was settled, wasn't it? Didn't go to court? No, I didn't go to court. I, I did want to go. I, 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 I mean, it's not really important, the money, but I, I, was, I would have paid them to go to court because I wanted to see the white of their eyes and, and let them know the pain and suffering that they caused my daughter, first of all, and I, I was very angry. Darren, you got a letter, didn't you, from those who missed those signs? Yeah. And they said, in light of the settlement, we wanted to personally write to you to express our regret, sorrow and sincere condolences for the passing of your late daughter. And then they went on to say, um, we admit that if the care and treatment provided to your daughter had been of a reasonable standard, on the balance of probabilities, she would have survived. How did you feel when you read that? If they had the same situation, Kate, again today, if they had the same situation in Emma walking tomorrow, they would survive 100% because they would follow the protocol that they now know. So why why, why did they not know that anyway? I, I'd, I, I feel, yeah, I've had to drive past that surgery and how I've stopped myself from knocking that door down and I'll never forgive them. That's how angry I felt, and that's how angry I still feel. That's how angry I feel. There are more than 3,000 new cervical cancer cases in the UK every year, more than eight every day. It's most common in women in their early 30s. If spotted early, it can be treated. But too often, cases are being missed, particularly in young people. Laura Perkins from Click Sergeant explains. The best chance from the start surveyed a number of young people and parents whose diagnosis was delayed or missed entirely. The results were that over half of the young people visited their GP at least three times before their cancer was diagnosed. And actually a quarter of young people required five visits or more to their GP to be referred on and get that diagnosis. And that delay is 
huge, not only with the emotional toll on the young person, but we know how that unfortunately would change a prognosis. We don't get many cases where it goes to court, in all honesty. I think GPs are getting much better at referring on and seeing these signs much earlier, even in young people. And some of the research ClickSargent have done has shown that GPs might only see one case of a young person with cancer in their entire career. So for them to be picking that one up is difficult. And we recognise that. And ClickSargent are doing some work um, with our nurse educators to try and educate GPs. But I think the frustration is the repeated visits. In Emma's case, it was countless calls, visits. Did she ever seem bitter about the fact that she wasn't diagnosed until it was too late for her? I don't think Emma felt bitter about anything or anyone, but there were certainly days towards the end where she had a lot of anger and we would talk through her anger because in her mind she'd done everything in her power to try and get this diagnosis and deal with it at that point. And for Emma, it was always... I think my time has gone, but if I can help anyone else with the knowledge that I've learned and my experience, then I would want to. Tracy Miles is a gynaecological cancer nurse who works for the NHS and for the Eve Appeal charity, which aims to raise awareness of gynaecological cancers. What we really want to do is to raise awareness so that women can pick up the signs and symptoms early Cervical cancer has a number of symptoms. The one that screams out as a signal is irregular bleeding, unexpected bleeding. It can be during periods, it can be after sex, it can be after the menopause, but bleeding is the predominant symptoms. More advanced cancer, she may find that she's having urinary changes, she may have backache, but it's bleeding that's the signal. One of the reasons why Emma was, she wasn't listened to in the early stages was because of her age. What kind of age are women susceptible to this kind of cancer typically? It's generally a cancer of a woman in her 30s and above. So it is unusual at Emma's young age in her early 20s. However, if we get symptoms, we should get them checked. Tell me though about the screening process and how that works exactly. So the screening programme is an absolutely amazing programme. It used to be known as the SMEAR programme, but I'm really glad you called it screening process. Um, But that programme starts at the age of 25. Now, the reason it's 25 and not younger is because it takes a while for the cervix to mature. And under the age of 25, we are more likely to get more false positives and therefore cause problems and concerns for her future life. That said, if a young woman like lovely Emma has symptoms, then those symptoms should certainly be looked into. So symptoms under the age of 25 should not be ignored. Smear or screening programme, as we now call it, over the age of 25. She must go for her invitation, that girl. And what's your advice to women who might really not want to go for this screening because they perceive it to be either embarrassing, uncomfortable, unpleasant? I mean, it's not the nicest experience, is it? No, totally get that. No woman really wants to take time off work or time off play to go to the doctors, take her knickers off and and have a smear done or a screen done. But actually, if she doesn't do that when she's invited, she may well miss the opportunity for her healthcare team to pick up precancerous cells, which can be treated so easily. When you look at Emma's case, um, 
it's obvious that she had a hunch. She knew there was something wrong. She went to the doctor. She even suggested that she thought she had cervical cancer. And over and over again, she was turned away and said not to worry. Um, what kind of language, what kind of advice can you give to somebody about how they should approach a doctor so that they are listened to, they're taken seriously? Emma was clearly very eloquent. It's quite often useful to take with you a kind of script to the GP so that you don't have that sort of rabbit in headlights feeling of, especially when you're going back a, a couple of times, especially when it might be a telephone consult because we're in this covered situation. So on our website, we've got a top tips for going to the GP and it literally reminds you of all the things that you probably would have said anyway, but talk about your menstrual history, talk about your contraception if you use it, talk about your wishes for fertility if you have them, and also to describe the bleeding you have, whether it's fresh blood or whether it's a brown discharge or a smelly discharge, whatever you've got, write it down so you've got that script there for the GP. And I think that often helps. It helps the GP too. We've talked to a lot of GPs and GPs do welcome this. In this episode of The Case Files, we've been on a life-changing journey with Darren Swain, talking about his daughter, Emma. I got a really powerful impression of someone who's made it his mission to improve things for those facing cancer and someone committed to helping the hospital which treated his daughter so well. They're absolutely amazing, the Royal Marsden. I mean, um, if I'm honest, that's my way of coping. I saw the normal NHS, no budgets. You know, I remember one night we was in there and Emma needed a heated blanket for her shoulder because she was in pain, they didn't have one. And I just needed a cup. There was three parents staying overnight and we had one between three of us and stuff like that. So I decided to use my job, Tesco, to as much fundraising. So I, I manipulated a conference where we had about a 1,000 people there. Put Emma's picture up on the screen because I was talking anyway and just said, like, you know, there's something I want to ask. And I asked that we could have a fundraising event. Um, we raised over £100,000. And then we did another fundraising event where we raised another £50,000. And then we've done some, you know, 24-hour walks where I've gone along and opened them up and, try, you know, it's been difficult, but done a talk because there's been lots of parents suffering with the same thing. I still go to the Marsden regularly to keep that young persons wall topped up with cutlery with Christmas lights and and loads of other bits because those guys are special and the way they cared for my daughter in was as good as I could as her dad. Thanks to fundraising the research being done and advances in understanding treatment for cancer is improving all the time. Tracy Miles hopes future generations of young women won't suffer in the same way. She has great hopes for the vaccine now in use for HPV, the virus that causes most types of cervical cancer. The vaccine we are hoping, and it's massively promising, will eradicate nearly all the chances of women getting a cancer. I think we should never say completely, and we should always look for symptoms and be symptom aware in situations where we are not expecting it. We are now, thankfully, vaccinating boys and girls to get what we call herd immunity. But the virus changes. Viruses can change. Viruses can multiply. We can get new viruses. COVID tells us that. So we should never be complacent and think, yeah, that's it. 
I think, however, we can get rid of the vast majority of cervix cancer in our future generations. Laura Perkins still works at the Royal Marston, where Emma received her treatment. She carries on helping families on their journey with cancer, and her relationship with Darren continued. He fundraised an incredible amount of money, and it went towards creating a room on the ward, which is Emma's room. Um, And it's actually a therapies room. Along the way, Emma found great um, peace and really enjoyed her complimentary therapies. I'd arranged for the hospital massage therapist to come and would often massage her feet when she was having chemo. And then when she was on the ward, come in and do massage, aromatherapy, that side of things. And for Darren, that was important. So that's why the room exists in Emma's memory, but for other young people to enjoy that side of the therapies. That, that idea of having something positive coming out of something so awful must be quite important. What do you consider as the kind of the glimmers of hope you get from this kind of situation? It can be as simple as giving a young person a wig when they've lost their hair that gives them the courage to go to school. Working with a young person whose dreams of being an astronaut have fallen apart and they have to rebuild everything and think about the education they've got and where they could go making sure that a young person has their funeral plan in place and that when they're gone they know that that's something I will pass on to the family if they don't have the strength to have that conversation with them at that point in time and it makes it all worth it those exhausting days they don't matter is that why you do it I think so (laughs) I think after a death especially if it's someone that you've, you've worked quite closely with it does rattle you and you do kind of have to put that somewhere and realise that it's actually not your grief in many ways. I only knew Emma for a short time, but her family knew her a lot longer and they're grieving that person that died. I asked Maria Rapanos from Slater and Gordon what she thinks can be learned from Emma's case. I think from a sort of healthcare setting perspective where there has been a death as a result of negligence. I think it can help improve the quality of care that's given to patients and to their families. And also it can help healthcare providers, you know, when they're reflecting on what's happened, identify what more can be done. In Emma's case as well, it does lead one to think whether the current age for cervical screening should be lowered. The current age now is 25 and there have been petitions to the government to lower this to 18 because obviously whilst it's rare, it, it, it does happen and Emma's a prime example of that and she lost her life. I think there needs to be further consideration as to whether the the age for cervical screening needs to be lowered. Darren's life has been totally transformed by this experience. He lives with the legacy, and in many ways he still lives with Emma. He finds himself talking about her in the present tense. And her bedroom in his house is just the way she left it, right down to the packet of crisps on the bedside cabinet and the urn she chose for her ashes. I'm just going to Emma's door. You know, there's there's a sort of sister's bedrooms around us, but this is exactly how the room was. So this little chair here was where I used to sort of sit at night, be in the bed on this side. And that's one wig over there. And it kind of, I'd because that was her favourite wig, kind of a good memory of her. 
I have annual parties, I have get-togethers with her friends. Sometimes her friends will come over and just say, can I go and sit with Emma? And I'll just leave them the keys to my house and go out and let them sit with Emma and crack a bottle of Prosecco and still have their moment, which I suppose is the same as a family going to the church or going to a memorial place. And, and But I like the thought of her being under my roof and safe. But that's her in her dressing gown there on the bed. But that was her choice of urn that took me two months to get. But I haven't um, kind of managed to get her in it yet. I'm going to get someone to do that for me, I think. But You know, very close to my daughters. I'm always close, but that's not changed. Probably be knocking on the door in a minute to see how dad is. If I'm honest, they, they don't stay because they kind of find it a bit different. I mean, I'm, I'm rattling around in a five-bedroom house. That's her favourite picture of her best friend's child. So when she comes over once a year, she brings... You know, we'll eat, drink, normally Chinese, and talk about Emma really freely. I go into a bedroom, sit beside her uh, bed, and, I, and I'll have a conversation with her, and I'll tell her what I've got planned today, and I hope she's going to be all right today, and I'll get her to wish me luck, and I wish her a lover. And I'm quite proud of that. That's my way of... Um, coping with it everything's exactly as per and um i hope that doesn't cause anyone any upset or offense but i'm, I'm proud very proud of um, um this is her bedroom i haven't decorated anything but Thanks again to Maria Rapanos, medical negligence lawyer at Slater and Gordon, Tracy Miles from the charity Eve Appeal, and Laura Perkins from Click Sergeant. And thanks especially to Darren Swain for telling us Emma's story. And I'll finish this, this conversation with yourself and I will go in there and I'll talk to Emma in her room. What are you going to say to her? I'm going to tell her I'm, I'm, I'm doing what she wanted me to do. Keeping her memory alive and I'm battling to make sure that that stops it happening to someone else. You know, even if it's one person's life, then, then that's what Emma wanted. And I'll go and have that and then I'll tell her I love her and I'll cuddle and then I'll probably go and have a Chinese and a beer. <laughs> so. If you want to know more about this or other episodes of The Case Files, have a look at the website slatergordon.co.uk forward slash podcast or head over to our social media channels and search hashtag casefilespod and join the conversation. I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.